Be seated and open your Bible, please, to Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, chapter 14. We come to the close or the climax of this wonderful little book of prophecy, Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is one of the most spiritually wealthy books in all the Word of God. And in it are references abundant to both the first and the second coming of Jesus. Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai. They both lived after the Babylonian captivity and they lived in an age when the people of the Lord had gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and had gotten discouraged and had quit. And Haggai had tried to urge them on back into the work of the Lord, back to the work. But they had had opposition in the land. Some of that opposition had so discouraged them that they said they were laughing at the Lord. The opposition was laughing at the idea of God being with the people of Israel. They laughed at the idea of ever building the temple and building Jerusalem. They scoffed at them. And Haggai's hands needed strengthening. And so Haggai, an old man, is strengthened by the young preacher Zechariah. Zechariah coming along with a message from the Lord, with a message even in his name in the first verse of Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. The word Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. The word Berechiah means Jehovah blesses. And Edo means his time. So we have in this book, Jehovah remembers to bless in his time. God never forgets his people. The Bible says that a mother may forget her little baby and cast it from her. But our Lord will never forget those who are his own. Jesus said, I will never leave nor forsake you. And so the whole book of Zechariah was written to encourage the people of God in their task of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And at times it seems that some of the prophecies of this book refer to things that are being fulfilled at that time. But when you read history and you read what really happened at that time, you recognize that the fulfillment of these precious truths did not come in Zechariah's day. Nor did they come in the days following. Nor did they come when Herod rebuilt the temple in the time of the Lord Jesus. But they looked down the distant years to a time yet to be fulfilled. In the book of Zechariah, we have at least eight references or references made to eight different experiences in the life of Jesus. In Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9, his atoning death for the removal of sin. In chapter 6, verse 12, he is called the builder of the house of God. In chapter 6, verse 13, and chapter 9, verse 10, his universal reign as king and priest are referred to. In chapter 9, verse 9, the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem is alluded to. Behold, the king cometh. 
In chapter 11, verse 12, it is told that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And in chapter 12, verse 8, his deity is referred to. And in chapter 12, verse 10, it is said that his hands were pierced in the house of his friends. And in chapter 13, verse 7, he is called the smitten shepherd. Now with all of that in mind, we come to the crowning chapter of the entire book. Chapter 14 is the crown of Zechariah. It actually begins with verse 7 of chapter 13, and I want to read beginning with chapter 13, verse 7, and reading through verse Zechariah 14. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man who is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn his hand upon the little ones. Now notice immediately that that is reference to the Lord. When our Lord was smitten and the sheep were scattered and Israel was scattered in the days ahead into a dispersia that lasted for 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years until 1948. It shall come to pass that in, that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts of it shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined, and will test them as gold is tested. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say it is my people, and they shall say the Lord is my God. Those references referring to Israel. Israel going through the fire of tribulation, just the latest time, with Eichmann killing six million Jews in Germany during the time of Hitler there, was a time of the Jews passing through the fire they have passed through the fire, and God said, I will refine them as gold is refined, and will take them back to their land. There's also a spiritual principle in which all of God's people are refined in the furnace of fire. And when tribulation and trouble and difficulties come, the one who is a fake, the one who doesn't really have living, vital, spiritual faith, may shake his fist in God's face and say, if you're really God and you act that way, I'll have no more to do with you. But those who are God's own, those who are the children of God, the people of God, will recognize, though it is difficult, that the trials and the afflictions of our Lord are tests to try the kind of gold and metal out of which we are composed and made. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the, land, the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, 
Yea, ye shall flee as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at eventime it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. All the land shall be turned like the Arabah from Geba to Reman, south of Jerusalem shall be lifted up and inhabited in the place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananiel unto the wine, king's winepresses. And men shall dwell in it, and there shall no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite all the peoples that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their feet, their eyes shall consume in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouths. It would be interesting to read in a parallel account a description of what happened at Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the atom bomb was exploded. I read an account that sounded exactly like Zechariah 14:12. They shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. They shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall flee, shall fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the nations round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents as, as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague with which the Lord will smite the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and boil in them, and in that day there shall be no more a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. You cannot read this chapter without noticing the eight times in that day is mentioned. 
You ought to underscore it. 17 times in chapter 12, 13, and 14, we read that expression, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. And the prophet is peering down the years, looking to a yet distant day, the day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, God is saying. I heard just a little while ago about a man who went berserk and went into a hospital in Russellville this last week and stabbed his wife and then was killed himself. I have a clipping here that says it can't be much longer before Christ calls us home. Abortion is the murder of human life. The Bible makes this emphatically clear. The psalmist said in chapter 139, 13, 15, and 16, Thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, when as yet there was none of them. If all human parts were written in God's book before any of them was formed, or when they were but substance, seed, ready to be secretly injected for materialization, it is easy to see that all, all fetuses are counted as planned human beings by God Almighty. Now the point. In a special article, there was this proposal made by Gary Willis. I have a modest proposal to make. Some will say I borrowed the idea, but I don't mind that. My aim is public utility, not a reputation for originality. There is currently some controversy over abortion. If the law forbids abortion, women undergo undue risk and expense in Ill illegal operations or else bear unwanted children to bear them or be dumped on others. We have taken the wrong approach to this problem. Women get abortions because they do not want the fruits of delivery and no one knows what to do with unwanted fetuses and so on. He goes on to suggest that they be sold on the market and they be eaten. They be canned and eaten. Does that make you sick? I hope it does. But this is a time in which we live. This is an age in which we live. Violence and crime and sin and all kinds of of things we would never have thought of a few years ago, that's the kind of time in which we live. And the Bible says that before the end day comes, we will see things we never dreamed we would see. The scripture speaks of one of the times when Jerusalem was besieged and it was so sad and so tragic in that Jerusalem of that day that the people actually ate their own little babies because they were starving to death. And the Bible says there is coming another time in the earth when it will be like that. Behold the day of the Lord. That's what God is saying. And the day in which we live, while it's a tragic day, a day of sorrow, a day of sin, a day when sin is rampant, we're living in an age like nobody ever lived before. An age of opportunity. An age to get the gospel out. An age to say to a world that is staggering and wondering, what do we do next? And we have so become so crisis-hardened that nothing can move us. We can go out with a glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and say, I have an answer. Somebody said a few years ago, 
Anybody that can go into today's world and convince the world that they have the answer to the problem will have the ear of the world. One of the reasons the church doesn't have the ear of the world is because we have been cowed, we have been scared, we have no boldness, but praise God there is coming an age of new boldness, new spiritual audacity. I like what I heard this afternoon. Ron Chilton told me about one of our new bus pastors. He went out yesterday visiting, came to a house and uh, knocked on the door, and he's a salesman. And the door, uh, this guy stuck his foot in the door. And the man pushed the door, just was going to slam it in his face. And the man had his door foot in the door, our bus pastor did. And uh, the man tried again, and tried again. And uh, finally he said, something's wrong with the door. And he said, yeah, I've got my foot in it. And the man said, what you want? He said, I want to talk to you. He said, come on in. That's the kind of boldness we need. God sent us here. We don't have to apologize. We have the answer. And men are hungry for the answer. The answer is in the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit can give us spiritual spunk and some backbone in our backs and some power in our lives. We can go out filled with the Holy Spirit to tell men and women about Jesus Christ. Now when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't believe God is telling us to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can go out and act like a bunch of nuts unless we're bolted to the right screw. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God going out, doing what God wants us to do. And we need to do what the Lord tells us to do, filled with His Spirit. Now, I don't believe that the fruit of the Spirit and the evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be able to speak in ecstatic utterances. It's all right if you have that. And I don't argue with you over that. It's none of my business that's what you want to have. But I don't believe that's what the Scripture is speaking of when the Scripture speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's speaking of power to witness effectively, to have a spiritual power in your life so that you can go out believing that God sent you. I went to make a visit one day on a street in this city and an alcoholic lived there. And I was told that some of the kids were coming on our buses and I was told that it was a dangerous family. And I went to knock on the door and when I knocked, somebody said from inside, I've got a gun and I'm going to shoot you if you stay at the door. And I said, I want to talk to you. You come out here. And the man uh, stayed back there and I knocked again and I pounded on his door. I don't know why. The Lord just seemed to give spiritual boldness that day. And he said, I'm going to, I've got a, a shotgun here and I'm going to blow your brains out. I said, you don't scare me. I'm, I'm standing right here. I want you to come out here and talk to me. I want to talk to you about Jesus. And I started using the name of Jesus. Now listen, if you ever get scared, you're out witnessing, just, just mention the name of Jesus. Boy, the devil moves away. He can't stand that name. And the name of Jesus will give you spiritual power that you never dreamed you had. You just quote his name right out loud. Don't whisper it. Just quote it right out loud. Jesus, Jesus. And the devil flees. And so I started talking about Jesus through the doors, through the screen, through the door of that man. And you know what happened? He said two or three more times, and he cussed, and he swore, and he snorted, and... Finally, you know what he did? He opened the door and came out. And he started crying. He said, Preacher, I need what you've got. Can you tell me how to be saved? Now, he wasn't saved that day. and He didn't quit his drinking. But I'm saying that the Spirit of God moved in upon him and brought conviction. And this is the message of the Word of God. 
Now the Bible says the only thing that will do in the day like we're living is the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God when we go out to witness. We need the, the power and the, uh, the, the winsomeness and the attractiveness of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be sure that we have the message. And the message is the Word of God. Now for just a moment or two, and I'll try not to take a long time. This chapter I could talk on for hours and hours and hours, but I'll try not to talk very long. Not past midnight anyway. So you just stay right with me. I won't talk that long really. But I want you to notice that in that day, look in verse chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, and I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. As we face the end of the age, the Bible says there is coming a day when all the nations of the earth will be gathered around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the hot spot of the earth today. When we were right in the middle of the Vietnam crisis, when we were right in the middle of the, some of the other crises we've had, the Bible teachers were saying, that's okay, and we need to pray for those experiences, but keep your eye on Jerusalem. Keep your eye on the Middle East. And again tonight, we want to say, wherever there is a trouble spot on earth, pray concerning that trouble spot, but keep your eyes on the Near East, because that's where the last great conflagration is going to take place. The scripture says, in that day, in that day, I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. God's going to do it. Now, the people think they're doing it, but God himself is behind it because he's going to demonstrate once and for all the power of God. We're going to see a day of battle like the world has never seen before. They tell us some wonderful things about the Spanish Armada. When the Spanish Armada was in uh, trouble and there was that battle that involved the Spanish Armada, it seemed like the battle was going against the forces of righteousness and God just came out there and went and he blew his breath on the sea and he disturbed it so that God's forces got the battle. They tell us that when the Normandy invasion took place in World War II, that everybody that knew about this, and there were not very many who knew the exact day, but everybody that knew the date was worried. I read the story FDR, the last year of FDR, and read about that invasion. And everybody was nervous. And it says in that book that Franklin Roosevelt didn't sleep all night the night before that happened. Dwight Eisenhower over in England, in Europe, didn't sleep that night. And across the over in the Pacific, MacArthur knew about that, and he didn't sleep. All around the world, the leaders didn't sleep that night. And those who knew how to pray, prayed. What were they praying? They were praying for God's power. It said, I don't know whether Roosevelt was a Christian or not, but it said that he prayed. It said Dwight Eisenhower prayed. It said that MacArthur prayed. What happened? The next day, God moved on the scene in such a way that our ships were protected by cover of clouds and we were able to get to the French border before they were aware of what was happening and we landed on the Normandy beach and there was a great victory there. God did it! But there's coming a day when we're going to see what God can do in this world. All the nations of the world will be gathered around to Jerusalem. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished. Notice that it will seem for a while 
that the world nations are winning the battle against the Jews. It will seem for a while that Israel is going to be defeated, that all the power of God is going to be trampled in the earth. Doesn't that way it looks tonight? All around we see the forces of righteousness being scared and cowed. We see truth on the scaffold and wrong seeming to prevail. But God says there's coming a day when truth will no longer be on the scaffold and right will prevail. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Our Lord is going to take a personal hand in that last battle. Now in, in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38, we read that the forces of the north will be gathered down there. In Revelation chapter 6, 17 and 18, we read that the kings of the east, apparently referring to those who, who inhabit the east of the orient, maybe China, maybe Mongolia, or I don't know what all nations, but they're going to come across the Euphrates River on dry land, and they're coming down from the east. The forces from the north are coming. The forces from Africa are coming up, and the forces from the world are coming around, and they will hover in that field of Megiddo, the battle of Jehoshaphat, the last great battlefield of the world. And all the nations will focus their tyranny and their arms and their armament against Jerusalem to battle. And then our Lord will come in battle. Notice in verse 4, the second in that day, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the, on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Ye shall flee as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Now what is this? This is a reference to the glorious second coming of our Lord. Jesus is coming again. Now he's coming in the clouds to take his own unto himself. And then the awful tribulation period will set in, in which this world will get darker and darker and darker, hour by hour. Sin will reign, and the Antichrist will rule in the earth. And then the nations of the earth will gather around Jerusalem to battle, and right in the heat of the battle when everything is going against the forces of God, everything is going against the forces of Israel, our Lord will come. And the Bible says in in book of, of Jude, that he will come with 10,000 of his saints, and thousands of thousands will come with him, and he will put his feet, will touch in that day on the Mount of Olives. Somebody says, you don't think that's literal, do you? Well, in Micah, the Old Testament prophecy said, but thou Bethlehem, though thou be little among the princes of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come who is to be ruler in Israel. Was that literal? Did Jesus really come to Bethlehem? Was he born there? If that was literal, then I believe the Mount of Olives is literal. The Lord is coming and he's going to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And God says there's going to be a great cleavage in that mountain. Now, all of you, I'm sure, have heard already that the Mount of Olives seems to have a great fault in it. When you speak of a fault, it's like the fault that runs through California. They say there's a fault through Southern California that one day part of that Southern California is going to break off and fall into the sea. I don't know when it'll be. I read it in the Reader's Digest recently. 
that they actually expect that to happen in this century, in the year, in before the year 2000, something serious. And, and our, our people who are predicting, who are learning how to predict earthquakes are saying that they're able to tell uh, just a little bit in advance when those faults will come and when the earthquake will come. And they're setting up with a, 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 a sophisticated advanced warning system for California because of thousands of millions of people that will be affected. Well, over in, in the Jerusalem, Mount of, the, Mount of, uh, the city of Jerusalem is situated on three mountains. Mount Zion, where David's capital was. Mount Moriah, where Jesus died for our sins and where the ancient temple was. And then Mount, Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives towers above the others. The Mount of Olives is, oh, I don't know how many feet above the city of Jerusalem, but you stand in the city of Jerusalem and you can look up to the Mount of Olives. It's not a huge mountain, but it's an elevation in the earth. A whole area is a mountainous area. And this scripture says that that mountain will be, will be, there will be a cleavage in it when the Lord puts his feet upon the mountain. And the mountain will divide from the east to the west and there will be a valley and the Jews will be able to flee into that valley and flee for their lives. And the Lord himself will come. And notice in verse 12 what shall happen. This shall be the plague with which the Lord shall smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. I don't know what that's describing. That may be describing hydrogen warfare. That may be describing atomic warfare. I do not know. But the scripture says it's a tragic day. It's a day when the Lord God will forever and forever put an end to the forces of evil and sin and wickedness and all that, are the, that cause calamity in the earth. Now, right now, they tell us that the Mount of Olives is condemned, that there's a fault in the Mount of Olives. And I understand from some source that one of the, one of the uh, chain of, of uh, inns and hotels in America wanted the permission to build a new motel on that Mount of Olives. And the permission was denied because the engineers said the mount is not safe for any new construction like that. In other words, they too are expecting, like we are expecting something to happen in Southern California, they're expecting something to happen to the Mount of Olives. And the Bible tells us that the Mount of Olives will cleave when the Lord puts his feet there. He is coming again. Now the reason for this message and the reason for the book of, Mac, book of Zechariah and the message of Zechariah was to give an encouragement to the people of God in the days of darkness, in the days of sorrow, in the days of tragedy. The Lord is on the throne. Look in verse 6. It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but shall be one day with, which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at even time it will be light. In other words, when that day happens, that's the beginning of the millennial reign. It's the beginning of the age of gold. It's the beginning of the age of peace. The Lord puts an end to the forces of sin, the forces of wickedness, the forces of hell, the forces of the devil. And in Revelation 20, we read that the devil is chained for a thousand years and the Lord establishes his kingdom of peace. And we don't understand all about the signs and, and the... Uh, what this scripture means concerning the light and the day that's a different kind of day but whatever it means 
It means that the Lord is going to be in charge and he will rule and reign in the earth. And bringing the message to a quick close, look in verse 20. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. What is he saying? He's saying that there will be, that even the secular things of that society will be holy unto the Lord. Even the horses that go around with little bells on them, those little bells will say holiness unto the Lord. Not going to be any such thing as worldliness and wickedness and sin and tragedy, all those kinds of things. There's not going to be any X-rated movies and things that would allure us and liquor joints and, and uh, we're not going to have any problems with guns and ammunitions and all those things because the Lord God will be in charge. And I don't understand this. And I'm not trying to be a prophet or the son of a prophet. I don't understand this, but I think the scripture teaches that there's not going to be any death in that day. So we're not going to need any more funeral homes, Brother Bill. And we're not going to need any more hospitals. We're not going to need any more ambulances. There won't be any emergencies. In that wonderful day, the Lord God will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And in that wonderful millennial reign, our Lord will be in charge of everything. And listen. There won't be any heartaches. There's not going to be any weeping in the night. There's not going to be sobs where people are awake all night unable to sleep because of their broken heart. There's not going to be any more robberies and thefts. There's not going to be any more crime and violence because the Lord God omnipotent will reign and he knows how to run this earth. The earth was made for the Lord, but men took it over and violently overthrew the Lord's plan. But the Bible says that one day the plan of God will be reinstituted in the earth and our Lord will be in charge of it all. And he shall reign from the city of Jerusalem and the saints of God will reign with him. I do not know when that day will come. It may come soon. Look up for your redemption draweth nigh. It may come in the lifetime of the believers who are in this auditorium gathered here tonight. We may see the eastern sky first open. With spiritual eyes, we'll see our Lord. Nobody's going to have to say, hey, look, that's him. That's him. Because we'll all recognize him, those who are his. And we'll not be hesitant to go to him. And we'll be caught up together with the Lord to be with him. There shall take place the judgment seat of Christ the marriage supper of the Lamb, and after a while we'll come back to this earth with our Lord when the Lord plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and he sets up his established throne in the earth and Christ shall reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. I want to ask you, are you ready for that? First of all, two questions. First of all, to those of you who are lost here tonight, are you ready for that? If our Lord should come tonight, the Bible says two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be in bed sleeping, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be at the mill grinding, one will be taken, the other left. Those who are Christ will be taken to be with him. Are you saved? Are you God's child? Are your sins under the blood? If you're not God's child, then flee to him tonight. Flee for refuge. The safest place in this world is the rock of ages cleft for me where we can hide ourselves in him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If you're not saved, turn to him. Now the second question, if you are saved, now please listen to this. I want to ask you to tune your spiritual ears to this if you haven't heard anything else I've said tonight. If you're saved, don't you hide behind some little profession of faith you made some years ago when you walked down an aisle and you were baptized and you say, well, that's all right, now I can live like the devil. I can take my drugs, I can take my dope, I can take my sin, I can live any old way I want to. And after all, everybody else is doing it. Don't you hide behind that. Because when the Lord comes and you're face to face with the king, if you know him, Oh, how thoroughly ashamed. How thoroughly ashamed. This Bible says, My little children, let us abide in him so that when he shall appear, we'll not be ashamed before him at his coming. Imagine being ashamed when our Lord comes. Oh, how different to look forward to his coming, but how ashamed we'd be if we're out of fellowship, if we're out of out of, we're not living where God answers for. We're not serving him. We're not doing what God wants us to do. What a shame. What a tragedy. I remember when I was a young boy, many times my mother would work and my dad would work and they'd be gone and they left my sister in charge. My sister Edith was sort of like a, well, I don't know, sort of like a mother to us for a while. And, she, and, and they'd say, now, whatever she says, you do it. And sometimes you know how that is with sisters. How many of you got sisters? Put your hands up. All right. You know what I mean, don't you? Big sister tells you what to do, and you sort of have rebellion in your heart, and you don't do it. And, uh, you know, I used to always look forward to my mother and dad coming home. And I remember one day I wasn't so glad when I thought of their coming home because they left sister in charge, and she told me to do something, and I didn't do it. And she said, all right, now when mother and dad come home, I'll have to tell them. And I was scared for them to come. I loved them. I loved them very much, but I was scared for them to come. I wasn't looking forward to it. I was ashamed before them when they came. Because you see, I mean, I'm not trying to say, you know, I'm not trying to say anything about my life. I just want to say that I didn't customarily misbehave like that. That wasn't the way I used to live. I tried to do what my mother and dad taught me. I tried to honor them, but there was a time when I didn't. And that day, I remember it stands out in my mind right now. I was ashamed for them to come home. Oh, I was ashamed. Now listen, there's coming a day when Jesus is coming. He's coming to take us. I wonder if we're going to be ashamed before him at his coming. I wonder, is there sin in our lives? Is there shame in our lives? Is there something that has gotten into our lives and wrapped its tentacles around us so that we're ashamed? if Jesus should come and find us customarily living like we're living. If so, why not put all that over on the Lord tonight and say, Lord, I don't want to be ashamed before you you're coming. I want to serve you. I want to love you. I want to live for you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. The greatest motivation to winning people to Jesus Christ is the concept of Christ's coming to this earth eminently. Any moment, any day, and he's coming. Oh, Lord Jesus, how long, how long, ere we shout that glad song, hallelujah, Christ returneth, Christ returneth, amen. Christ returneth, amen. And we pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee.
that one day our Lord will come again. We do not know when. But in the interim, we can go to sleep at nights knowing that we're on the winning team. That all, though all hell should try to react against us and bring us down to the brink of defeat and tragedy, we can know that we're on the winning side. That one day, all that seems now so mysterious will be bright and as clear as the day. Oh God, we ask tonight that those who are without Jesus will come to know thee and love thee and trust thee. And those who are already God's children by faith will begin to serve thee and live for thee. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. May we stand, please. We're going to sing God's invitation. This is the invitation of the Lord. And as we sing tonight, if you're here this evening without Jesus, you've never trusted him as your personal Savior, I wonder if you wouldn't open your heart to him now. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Would you come to him like you are? Don't try to clean your life up first. You just come as you are, and he'll take care of cleaning you. Now, if you're already saved, if you're God's child, I wonder if you've been trying to live as close to the world as you could and still go to heaven. I wonder if you wouldn't like to say, Lord, instead of living a life like that, I want to get as close to God as I can get and still live on the earth. I want to see how close to heaven I can live and still be part of the earth. Wouldn't you like to do that? We're going to sing. It's our prayer that those who have never been saved will come to Christ and those who are saved, God's children. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart that you'd come tonight surrendering your life to the Lord to say, I want to serve you, I want to live for you. There may be somebody here tonight that God is calling to preach. Won't you surrender to him? God's calling you into his Christian service. Would you say, Lord, here's my life. I yield it to thee. It's a great time to be alive, opportune time to go and tell. I'll commit my life to go and tell for Christ. There may be someone whose life has been out of sorts. You haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian, and you like to come and say, I need to be full of the Spirit of God. I want to be re-indwelled by the Spirit of the Lord. I just want to humble myself before God and ask for His full power. Will you do what God wants you to do? While we pray, while we wait, while we sing, will you step out for the Lord? <laughs>